A double stop is when a stringed instrument plays two notes at once, transforming from a single note instrument to a multi-note instrument capable of harmony. Double stops sound really cool, and as a bonus, they'll make all of your horn-playing friends insanely jealous. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me for another season talking about double stops, single stops, boogie stops, stop time, and all sorts of other musical stops. Here we are for season five of Strong Songs. I am so excited. It's amazing I've been making it for this long, and this whole time, this show has been totally listener-supported. It's the only way I make any money off of this show, so if you want to support Strong Songs, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs, and thanks so much to everyone who chips in. On this episode, we've got a new wave classic that really doesn't need any hype or preamble. You know it, you love it. It's a great song, so let's tune up our strats, fire up the synth, and get into it. so happy to be back so glad to be back making new episodes of strong songs i had a vital and rejuvenating break and i really appreciate all of you who hung out during the hiatus caught up on old episodes re-listened to some favorites shared the show with new people and hey to all of you new people out there welcome i know there are a lot of folks listening who have only started listening to strong songs in the last few months so welcome to the show i'm really glad that you're here and excited to kick off season five but you know what i don't want to spend any more time on preamble than I absolutely need to, and I'm arguably already doing too much of it. So I just want to get right into the music. I want to get right into the new season and the new song. So let's just do that, all right? The next strong song, the newest strong song, wastes no time making itself known. There's just a tinkling on an electric piano, a slide up an electric guitar neck, and the song is underway. You hear that clock-like guitar part? You hear that ethereal sampler choir? That's right, it's time to talk about Tears for Fears and their 1985 new wave hit, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. This is one of those songs that I've heard so many times. There was such a part of my childhood, and yet when I went back and listened to it, I had no idea how good it is. It is my hope that, over the course of this episode, in the Strong Songs tradition, I can help convey to some of you that same feeling of re-appreciation of the brilliance of this song and help you pick out some of the many fascinating tones and carefully arranged layers that Tears for Fears and their producer Chris Hughes so brilliantly balanced while making this song. It's a harmonically minimal, thoughtfully constructed piece of music that's brought to life with a mix of classic synths, classic drum machines, guitars, vocal harmonies and just the right amount of rock and roll grit. I am very excited to get into it, so let's get into it. Ooh, 
Everybody Wants to Rule the World was written by Tears for Fears guitarist Roland Orzabal, keyboardist Ian Stanley, and producer Chris Hughes. It features bassist Kurt Smith on lead vocals and synth bass. Orzabal played guitars and provided vocal harmonies. Stanley was playing synths and did some drum programming, and drummer Manny Elias played the drums. It was produced, like I said, by Chris Hughes, and it also features Neil Taylor on additional guitars, and Taylor takes the second guitar solo at the end of the recording. The song was a single off the band's second studio record, 1985's Songs from the Big Chair, which went on to become a worldwide hit and is probably the most famous Tears for Fears record that there is. It certainly cemented their status as an important new wave band. Songs from the Big Chair also features songs like Shout, and Head Over Heels. This is actually one of those songs that I've heard a million times, but I heard it with fresh ears when I started listening to Tears for Fears for this episode. This song is great. So, you know, that kind of gives you a sense of the sonic identity of this album. It definitely has its own distinct sound. That's thanks to a lot of different things that we're actually going to talk about on this episode. The band's songwriting approach, Smith's distinct vocal tone, you definitely know when you hear Kurt Smith singing. There's the specific gear they were using. In particular, this album was kind of a what's what of iconic electronic instruments of the 1980s. And of course, there's Chris Hughes' approach as a producer. You can hear all those things in pretty much every single song off of this album. And I really recommend sitting down with songs from the big chair and just giving it a listen. And you can certainly hear all of those things in Everybody Wants to Rule the World. This song is in the key of D major, though the recording actually sits somewhere in between D and E flat. I'm not sure why that is. I've detuned it about 50 cents for this episode, just so I don't have to retune my other instruments in order to play along with it without it sounding like nails on a chalkboard. But if it helps any of your purists out there, the band really does perform it in the key of D, so the song was written in the key of D. And for the perfectly pitched out there, if you're raising an eyebrow or an eardrum at the examples that you've heard so far, that is why. Before we get into any chords or melodies, though, I actually want to talk about this song's groove, because it has a distinct pulse, and I think that pulse is a big part of what makes it sound the way it does. Longtime Strong Songs listeners have probably already pegged what's going on with this song, but Everybody Wants to Rule the World isn't in standard 4-4 time. 4-4 meaning there are four quarter notes in a measure. That's the most common time signature for pretty much every song that I talk about in a lot of pop songs. That's just one, two, three, four, two, two, three, for. I've discussed 12-8 in the past with my most in-depth explanation probably being my episode about No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age, but it is something that comes up kind of regularly since it's really just a variant of 4-4 time. So the very simple explanation is that 12-8 time is a lot like 4-4 time, except that there are three eighth notes crammed into the same space that there is ordinarily just two. So you can count 4-4 and 12-8 almost the same. They just feel different because the eighth notes are subdivided differently. In Strong Songs terminology, that comes down to the sizzle being different and everything else being the same. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So like I said, we talk about thump, pop, and sizzle here on Strong Songs. The thump is down low. That's something to anchor the groove. 
the pop is higher up that usually offsets the thump. So on a drum set, those two functions are generally fulfilled by the kick drum and the snare drum. So we've got those two going in a pretty standard rock groove here. We're just counting it one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So now let's add the final element, the sizzle, which is going to be a hi-hat, and we're just going to put it in a standard 4-4 rock groove. So just two eighth notes per beat. Here we go. That's one and two and three and four and. Now keeping this groove going without changing anything in the thump and the pop, let's just change that hi-hat pattern so that instead it's got three eighth notes on each beat. One, two, three, one, two, three. That's called a triplet and it changes the feel significantly. You feel that? That's a really good demonstration of the power of the sizzle. Thump and pop, sure, they're very loud. You get the crowd doing thump and pop when you get everybody clapping along with a groove. But the sizzle, the subdivision, that's really the character of the groove. And changing the sizzle can completely change the feel of a song. Just by changing the hi-hat, we've gone from standard 4-4 rock to what's called a 12-8 shuffle. Sounds familiar, right? This whole groove just lives in that triplety 12-8 feel. A one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. There's a sort of a bounce to a shuffle, and I think that that's an interesting thing about this song. Everybody Wants to Rule the World is a pretty dark song. A lot of Tears for Fears songs were pretty dark, but this song is all about, you know, the Cold War and the human quest for power and corruption. It's uh, not a really jaunty, bouncy song, and I always like some lyrico-musical contrast, and there's a nice contrast between that bouncy shuffle and the more heavy subject matter. Welcome to your life. There's no turning back. Even while we sleep, we will find you. So that groove is important, but the sounds, the tones of this recording are just as crucial to its overall vibe. Everybody Wants to Rule the World was recorded with a collection of classic synths and drum machines from the 1980s, and I've had a great time trying to recreate some of the sounds and the tones here. Before we get into all of that, I want to shout out Dan Carr, who is a London-based musician who runs a site called Reverb Machine. Carr wrote a really great breakdown of all of the gear that was used on this session, and his post was very helpful for me, a synth amateur, trying to get everything sounding right. Carr was actually also the guy that I referenced when recreating Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill. So yeah, he's doing great work. I'll link to him in the show notes. Go check out his site for a much more in-depth look at the gear and sounds of this song and a bunch of other songs from this era as well. So as we talk about the sounds of this song, let's go back to the intro because Everybody Wants to Rule the World has an all-timer of an intro and a bunch of the songs defining instruments and sounds make themselves known from the start right from those beguiling first five notes. The 
sounds of that intro are being generated by a handful of instruments. So let's go through each of them and work out how they all fit together. And as we go, I'll actually point out times that you've heard each instrument on past strong songs that I've talked about on the show. So first of all, and actually the very first thing you hear is a Yamaha DX7. That's a famous synthesizer, an FM or frequency modulation synth that has provided bass and electric piano sounds for a billion 80s and 90s pop songs. You know it's electric piano sound. Uh, you may not know that you were hearing a DX7, but you heard a DX7 on so many different pop songs from the 80s and 90s, including, as it happens, Whitney Houston's cover of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. <laughs> you know that sound, right? That's a DX7. The DX7 gets a lot of play on Everybody Wants to Rule the World. It provides the combined tones that give you that twinkly opening riff, one of my favorite sounds from the song. And it's also the main electric piano sound for that two-chord motif that kicks off the verse. I'm actually also using a DX7 or a digital DX7 for the bass because I don't have the exact bass synth that they use. So DX7 has been very useful for me in this recreation. So that's the Yamaha DX7. Next up, we have the Fairlight CMI, which stands for Computer Musical Instrument, and which I've talked about a fair amount recently on the show. The Fairlight is a sampler, which means that it takes digital recordings called samples and allows you to manipulate and repurpose them using the sampler engine and also a keyboard if you want. The Fairlight grew popular in the mid-80s. A lot of different musicians used it. It let them turn non-musical sounds into music, and one example of that that we've talked about is the way that John Farnham and Glenn Wheatley turned car door slams into the drum sounds on Farnham's song You're the Voice. Those aren't drums. That is a slamming car door running through a Fairlight CMI, and they just changed the pitch to get different drum pitches. The CMI also allowed musicians to repurpose synth and other instrumental sounds in order to add a second or even third layer of manipulation to the original sound. And we, of course, learned about that with Kate Bush's brilliant sampling and resampling of a single cello sound, which she eventually turned into most of the sounds on her song Running Up That Hill. Fun fact about the Fairlight CMI that a Strong Songs patron recently hipped me to, it was developed by a pair of Australians, Kim Ryrie and Peter Vogel, in Sydney, and they named it after the Fairlight Harbour Ferry in the Sydney Harbour. And actually just visited Sydney and spent a lot of time on harbor ferries, so I thought that was pretty cool. Tears for Fears used the Fairlight CMI for a number of different things. Most notably to me is this lovely coral ooh that they use it to get. Uh, you can hear it right from the start. It lends this nice airiness to the sound of the recording whenever it comes in. For the drums, a lot of the sounds are a Lindrum, which is a wildly popular 80s drum machine that actually also turned up on Running Up That Hill and featured notably on Prince's Kiss. You know me, I will never turn down an opportunity to play the intro from KISS. But yeah, that's a Lindrum, and Tears for Fears use a Lindrum throughout this recording. I don't think all of the drums are a Lindrum. I think they also used an Oberheim drum machine, but I've, I've got some Lindrum sounds, so I used mostly those to recreate this. And especially those hi-hats are very distinctly Lindrum hi-hats. 
The snare drum I don't actually think is a Lindrum snare drum. That might just be an actual snare drum uh, played by Manny Elias. It's got that kind of gated reverb sound, but it's not super notable. So there is a snare drum and it fits into the groove uh, pretty well. But really there are two instruments left that I want to talk about. The first is another synthesizer, the Prophet, in this case a Prophet 8. The Prophet is a lovely sounding big fat synth that turned up in lots of bump recordings around this time period. Bernie Worrell, who played keys with Talking Heads on Stop Making Sense, he was playing a prophet with some of those juicy lead lines that he played on Burning Down the House. Tears for Fears used the prophet in a kind of similar way. They combined it with that DX7 electric piano to flesh out that two chord verse motif. So the Yamaha DX7, the Fairlight CMI, the Sequential Prophet, and the Lindrum, it's easy to get overwhelmed by all of those names, but actually, I used to feel that way too, but the longer that I've made this show and the more I've learned about songs from the 70s and the 80s, the more I've realized that there aren't actually that many of these iconic electronic instruments, and it's actually pretty fun to know about each of them since you start to hear them when they turn up, since they turn up on so many different types of songs from different artists. Even artists that I've already talked about on the show have used these instruments, and each one is just one more little thread that connects a lot of the music of this era. So last, one more instrument that isn't a synthesizer, it's not an electronic instrument, but it is absolutely crucial to the sound of this song, and that's Roland Orzabal's Fender Stratocaster. Sound layering, and in particular synth and guitar layering, where they take multiple different sounds and layer them on top of one another, that's key to the way this song sounds. And while Neil Taylor layered on some other guitars, and Neil Taylor is an excellent guitar player, he did some great work on this, we'll talk about it, some acoustic guitar work and he played that incredible solo at the end which I think is played on a Les Paul it's definitely a beefier guitar than the Fender Strat so much of the texture and sound of the majority of this song is that hollowed out ethereal Stratocaster sound and that's all Roland Orzabal he's playing a Strat right here at the beginning an extremely Stratty sound right on that beginning guitar riff I really love the way the guitar factors into this intro, and what I love about it is actually pretty specific. It's the way that Orzabal slides up the neck on his entrance. That sounds nice on its own. I always have liked the way that the fourth position pickup strat sounds when you slide up the neck. It sounds a little bit like Mario's jump from Super Mario Brothers. But what I like about this specifically is the way that it fits in with the arrangement. We start with those five notes, those distinctive, tinkly electric piano notes played by the DX7. So we start there and it's kind of descending, and then Orzabal picks right up from that. The whole thing is kind of those eighth note triplets, that really 12-8 shuffly feel. And right on the next eighth note, you've got Orzabal starting on a D and then sliding back up. So we go down and then back up. When you put them together, you get this light-footed upward bounce up to the guitar riff. It's so gymnastic and effortless. It feels so good. The opening eighth notes of this song are just magic. So just one more thing to keep your ears open for when we go through the entire intro, which, hey, let's do that. I'm going to play through my recreation fading into the original, and as we listen to both, I want you to keep your ears open for everything that I just laid out. Those tinkly opening piano notes played by the DX7 carrying on straight into Orzabal's slide up his strat neck into that opening guitar riff with those Lindrum hi-hats keeping the groove steady on that 12-8 pulse, that lovely choral ooh sound from the Fairlight Sea. 
AMI sampler, elevating the whole thing into a different atmosphere. And then once the groove comes in, the combination of the DX7 electric piano and that Prophet synth sound to make that fat, warm two chord motif as the verse gets started. All right, ears on, here we go. With that, it's time to get into the verse and this song's interesting harmony. Everybody Wants to Rule the World is in the key of D, but it's one of those songs that doesn't spend too much time on its home key, on the one chord. In this case, that means it doesn't spend too much time on an actual D major chord, despite the fact that it's in the key of D. And that's what gives it that suspended, floating feeling that runs throughout the whole song. It's a big part of the song's vibe, that it doesn't spend too much time on the one chord. The big harmonic idea in this song happens right at the start, and that's when the song moves between two two chords, an A major and a G major, and it moves between those two chords while placing them over a D pedal tone. Now, a pedal tone, just as a reminder, is any time that the bass just sits on a steady note while the chords above it move around. In this case, the chords are going from an A to a G, which would sound like this on its own. But those chords are moving over a D pedal, which means the bass is just sitting on a D, that nice synth bass, and that gives it a very different sound. Now, because I love to connect the things that we're talking about now to things we've talked about in the past, I want to call your ears back to not one, but two previous strong songs, because this song is doing something harmonically that's actually in a lineage that I bet some of you maybe have already noticed. Let's see. There's a D pedal. It's got two triads moving over that D pedal to make a suspended sound. What other songs that we've talked about have done something like that? Oh, right, Miles Davis's So What did that. And then, you know, So What did that. And then didn't something else like 10 years later, didn't another song explicitly use those same notes also in the key of D with the same approach in a completely different genre? Right, that's right. James Brown's Cold Sweat did the same thing in the same key. That's pretty cool, right? You can hear this harmonic lineage carrying on another 20 years later now as Tears for Fears uses a very similar harmonic idea and yet another completely different style to convey the same kind of suspended sound. It is a little bit different harmonically in that they're going from A major to G instead of from G to D minor, but the effect is largely the same. It has that floaty, suspended feeling, and the melody sung so beautifully by bassist Kurt Smith adds to that feeling. This is an exceedingly minimal melody, just in terms of melodic composition and the number of notes used. The majority of it is just three notes. There's a B, then an F sharp above the B, 
and an A right below the B. And that puts Kurt right at his vocal break. Welcome to your life. Which is a really nice place to be vocally for a guy with his kind of voice. He floats so delicately up to that F sharp. To your life. Every time he hits it, it's really nice. There's also some nice processing on his voice that I'll just mention real quick. There's some tasty reverb, probably some kind of digital reverb. And there's this nice slapback delay on his vocal track, which is a classic 80s sound that I've talked about in the past. I think I actually talked about it regarding the horns on Paul Simon's You Can Call Me Al. But it's really nice on a vocal track, too. And once you hear it, you kind of can't unhear it. Everything he sings immediately echoes, which really fattens up his vocal track. It's really just those three notes, B, F sharp, and A, and those three notes continue to dominate the melody into the chorus. an effectively minimalist approach to harmony and melody. As the chorus begins, the chords change. They go to an E minor, and then they kind of do this walk up, walk down, walk up thing. So it goes from E minor up to F sharp minor, up to G major, then it goes back down to F sharp minor. So the first part is kind of up and then back down. Then it does the same move, but twice as fast. E minor, F sharp minor, G, and then A, that's when they sing Everybody Wants to Rule the World, but it really wants to resolve to a D major from that A chord, that is the five chord, but instead of resolving to D, they just go back to those two chords from the beginning. The bass resolves to D, but the chords just do A to G to A to G, back the way that it did at the start of the song, which is that very suspended and unresolved sound. Let's listen back to that chorus, and I'll call out the chords as we go through them, and I'll play them on the piano, and just listen to that contour, the way it goes up and then down, then up twice as fast, and then instead of resolving to D, it goes to that suspended sound to start the second verse. E minor, F sharp minor, G major, F sharp minor, and then E minor, F sharp minor, G A, and we're back to the top. Now, what I like about that harmony is how it intersects with the melody. It's such a static melody, like I said. It's just kind of those same three notes over and over for a while, but it's given this real sense of motion by the fact that while the melody is staying the same, the chords are moving. And so the melody's context is changing, even if the notes of the melody aren't changing. And then when it's time for him to sing the title of the song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, the melody does begin to change. It steps most firmly away from those three notes and eventually ends by kind of walking down a D major scale. And as it does that, the chords also do their most dramatic movement, that kind of double time move up the scale to the A major chord. The whole song is kind of building toward this moment and it feels like such an arrival. So when he finally sings the title of the song, it really pays off and it actually works every time that he does it. Whenever he sings, everybody wants to rule the world, it really feels like the whole song has come together for that moment. Everybody wants to 
Now you're probably starting to hear some new sounds here, and that's because from the second verse onward, this song starts to make great use of layering. So there's some guitar layering going on right from the start of the second verse. You probably heard it. There's a new guitar sound in. I think that's an acoustic guitar. I believe that's Neil Taylor. But it might be Orzabal as well. Hard to say. They've got it mixed at the left and the right. And they might just be recording it direct. It's got this big taffy-like sound that really stands out from the Stratocaster, which has been the dominant guitar sound so far. Once Smith starts singing the second verse, this nice little keyboard part comes in, doing an almost Morse code kind of rhythmic figure. That just sort of picks the pulse up a little bit, makes it feel a little bit quickened for the second verse. right there, one of my favorite layered things they do in this song, in between vocal phrases, that little DX7 electric piano intro jingle shows up for a second time. I love that they use that again there. It's such a nice little line and fun to hear it in this song. So they keep this slightly more elaborate thing going into the chorus when Orzabal enters with a new guitar part. playing this kind of double stop figure um, a double stop on a stringed instrument is when you're playing two notes at the same time Orzabal is about to use double stops to great effect on the first instrumental kind of guitar solo section so this is a little bit foreshadowing the part he's going to play there it's a little bit down in the mix so let me play along with that chorus so you can really hear that guitar part With that, it's time to go into the bridge. So from the bridge out, this song becomes a real layer fest. They combine old ideas with new ones, layer familiar synths and samples onto new synths and samples and use familiar sounds in new ways. They stack melodies and counter melodies in all sorts of creative manners. This bridge is a good opportunity to talk a bit more about this song's lyrics, which are really cool. I never thought about them too much before I started making this episode, but I've been just reading through them and thinking about them. And they may have been written in a pretty different time, you know, the mid-1980s, but they definitely still resonate, at least with me, in this kind of abstract way. And I think that's because of the conflict, the sort of emotional conflict that's at their core. Welcome to your life. 
there's a sort of bleak hopefulness to this song, this mix of resignation to the cynical nature of the world, and this hope of finding some human connection in spite of that, in spite of the world. From the very start, the narrator is kind of shifting around between these two feelings. Welcome to your life. There's no turning back. It's a little bit of a shrug, right? Like, welcome to your life. <laughs> Get used to it. You're stuck here. But even then, it's kind of shifting around. It shifts to the first person plural even while we sleep we will find you then it shifts to first person it's my own design it's my own remorse and then that same first person begins addressing someone specific help me to decide help me It's all fairly abstract, and I'm sure it could be interpreted a lot of different ways. To me, there's just a general sense of hopelessness in those opening verses, and then that changes by the time they get to the bridge. It's a subtle change, but it does kind of happen, at least for me. The speaker begins addressing someone, help me to decide, he says, and then on the chorus, he switches from the first person to the second person, and the song becomes more hopeful in a lot of different ways. There's a room where the light won't find you, holding hands while the walls come tumbling down. When they do, I'll be right behind you. So glad we've almost made it. So sad they had to fade it. But you know, everybody wants to rule the world. It's the fact that I recently saw Hades Town, so I've got Orpheus and Eurydice on the brain. But there's something romantic about that. The idea that in the midst of all these geopolitical machinations, you can imagine how this felt in the middle of the 1980s at the height of the Cold War. We still might find some connection. And even if we don't make it out, we'll almost make it. And we'll be holding hands as we do. All for freedom and for pleasure. Nothing ever lasts forever. Everybody wants to rule the world. So this bridge marks a lyrical shift, but it's also a clear musical shift, both in terms of the sound of the song and also the harmony. They go up to the four chord, a G chord, then down to the five chord, an A chord, and then to a D, one of the few times that this song really hits a D, a D major chord very solidly. They go through that a few times, and the new chord progression adds some drama to this, and of course the new melody really adds some drama as well. Kurt Smith fully breaks away from that established melodic motif that he's been singing on the verse and the chorus, but also it's that new texture of distorted electric guitar, these double-tracked electric guitars that are playing through these kind of high-up power chords on the guitar. It's big and spacious, and along with those other things, it adds a lot of drama to this bridge. And then I love this. I'm pretty sure that's Orzabal on that high backing harmony. So sad they had to fade it. So sad they 
with that post-bridge chorus out of the way, it's time to get into the instrumental. So this instrumental section is a real saga. I love it. I think this song just transforms at this point. And all of those elements that we've just talked about, the guitars, the different electronic instruments, they all come together and have their moments to create this whole journey that the band takes you on. Appropriately, that journey starts by going back to the beginning. They reprise the intro riff with a new bass line underneath it, which actually gives it a really different sound. So they've gone from just this kind of suspended vamp like they had in the intro To a really different sound by introducing this bass line that goes from G to D to A, it really goes to show how dramatically the sound of something can change depending on what the bass is doing. Like here's a copy-paste of the recreation of the intro that I did with the drums in and a new bass line. Listen to how different it sounds. it's time for a whole new melodic idea led by the Fairlight CMI's beautiful choir sound. So it's funny, that D major melodic motif... That's actually the melody that I most associate with this song. And it's kind of interesting to me that it doesn't actually come in until so far into the recording. It's a really lovely little bit of music and a nice new idea to introduce in a song that is largely about introducing a series of strong ideas and then repurposing and recontextualizing them. Part of that is the harmony here. It's doing something a little bit different in this section. They're going back and forth between B minor and then up a half step to C major. And neither of those chords are all that strange in a D major pop song, but there's only a half step between them and it just kind of goes back and forth. B minor with the first part of the melody, then up a half step to C major with a nice little tritone there in the melody uh, from the F sharp in the melody that just adds some dissonance that blends wonderfully, I think, with the melody, the harmony, and this part of the song. It really pulls you out of it and puts you in a new emotional space at just the right moment. And I gotta say, this is really another moment where the Fairlight Choir shines. That's kind of a secret weapon of this song. There's a lot of great sounds on it, but I love the sound of that Fairlight Choir, and I think that it really fleshes out this line and just makes this section feel unusually peaceful for a song that's generally a little bit agitated and dark. So with all of that pretty, thoughtful stuff out of the way, it's time for this song to finally become the guitar showcase that it's always wanted to be. You can really think of the entire rest of the song, the verse into the chorus, back into the verse, to the chorus, and then to the outro verse, 
all as one big guitar feature. It starts with Roland Orzabal telling his whole guitar story. It's a real saga. We'll go through it. And then it ends with Neil Taylor taking a solo that's just really hip. And it's not one that I'd thought about before, but I think it's an underrated solo, the outro solo on this song. It's pretty incredible. But let's start with Orzabal. I mentioned double stops earlier where you play two strings at once on the guitar. And this entire solo is carefully composed out of artfully arranged double stops. He starts where he's been bouncing around before. He's down on the neck. Then he slides up. He does this nice one finger first and second string thing, kind of sliding down the neck. And then even when Smith's vocals come back in for the chorus, Orzabal keeps on going. He adds this modified version of his intro riff. He finally plays an actual solo-ish riff on the next verse vamp. And then he ends with a reprisal of his actual intro riff. It's so immaculately put together. I really like this kind of new wave guitar playing. I'm thinking back to Elliot Easton's guitar solo on the cars, You're Just What I Needed. It has a similar sort of logic to it. And I had a really great time learning this solo. And I was proud of myself that I could actually learn this solo. One of the benefits of spending a lot of time in pretty much the last year just actually practicing guitar every day is that I can start to really learn to play along with some of these songs that I'm covering on the show. So I'm going to do just that. Over this entire section of the song, I'm going to double Orzabal's guitar part with the goal of bringing his part up in the mix and helping you hear it even when Kurt Smith starts singing again so you can hear just how carefully put together and consistently interesting his guitar parts are. So, fingers loose, ears on, here we go. right? And then here at the end of Orzabal's guitar journey, they do one more bit of creative layering. (laughs) I love that as well, if you caught that. On the final statement of the song's title, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, they combine kind of everything. It all comes together in this moment. Orzabal's rhythmic double stops on the guitar, that ascending chord progression one last time, Kurt Smith's descending melody, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, and along with all of that, that new melodic motif that they introduce during the instrumental section, that descending line that I've actually always associated with the song, it turns out that each of those individual parts fits perfectly together, so they combine to give the song this final moment of culmination. Just in time for Neil Taylor's guitar solo to take us home. 
So I don't know whose idea it was to have a disgusting, super stanky electric guitar solo at the end of this song, but it works perfectly. This is such a mannered song in so many ways. It's really restrained in its emotions. It's about all of these dark, big ideas, but it's very controlled, very layered, all about these repeating, beautifully, immaculately constructed ideas. And then at the end, it's just time for Neil Taylor to pick up his Les Paul and just let it rip. Like, give me a break. If you try to play that riff, his left hand is just made of iron. Those long vibrato bends that he's doing. Man, it is cool. And it's such a perfect counterpart to Orzabal's carefully controlled guitar playing. Taylor's solo is just pure guitar id. This sort of primal, powerful scream at the end of an otherwise very measured song. And that's really it. I don't have a profound wrap-up for this song. No deep meditation on the meaning of life. It's just a really good song, arranged beautifully, played and sung with style and intention. A beguiling tale of resigned cynicism that can't quite bury a lingering hope. Ringing out from decade to decade, finding meaning for new listeners year after year after year. That'll do it for my analysis of Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll have a few new things to listen for the next time you hear this song. For me, at least, I got a whole new appreciation for just how brilliant a musician Roland Orzabal is. And I've had a great time just repeatedly listening to songs from the big chair. What a great record. It is a new season of Strong Songs, and I hope that means a new opportunity for some of you out there to consider whether you'd like to become a patron or make a one-time donation in directly support the creation of Strong Songs. I already outlined some of the changes to the Patreon this season and onward. The big one is that by becoming a patron, you will get early access to each new episode of Strong Songs. That means you'll get to hear each new episode two weeks before it hits the main feed. But really, it's just all about supporting this show and keeping it listener-supported so I don't have to do any of that sponsorship stuff or selling ads or really anything that would keep me from making this show exactly the show that I want to make and the show that you want to listen to. So that's it. That's my pitch. I hope you'll consider it. Patreon.com slash Strong Songs. And there's a link for one-time donations down in the show notes. One additional shout out to Dan Carr of Reverb Machine. Go check out his site. It's great. He's also got a Patreon that I just signed up for. So yeah, very cool to see people out there doing what he's doing, helping keep the legacies of those classic 80s recordings and those classic 80s pieces of equipment alive. No outro soloist this episode, but I've got a really fun one lined up for next time around. So look forward to that. In the meantime, take care, everyone. Keep listening, and I'll see you in two weeks with more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.